Oh, Lord, what a precious passage this is. Would you give me the ability, Lord, to communicate clearly what you're saying in this passage? And Lord, would you speak to the hearts of people today that need to understand the importance and significance of preaching? Lord, we know it's by the foolishness of preaching that you save those and add them to your church. We know that it is the the stated means by which you will gather in your elect. And so, Lord, we pray that the glory of this means would come forth full force to us today. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would open up this passage of Scripture to us. We thank you that he is the resident teacher. May he do his work through us, through me, to your people. Lord, may we learn and grow in grace today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're coming to holy ground. This is the very last letter that Paul ever wrote, and these are the last words of that last letter that he ever wrote. And Paul is coming to his climax in the section we're about to embark on. As I come to it, I look at it as being on sacred ground. I don't know how if you feel the same way, but when we come to these words, they are precious. They're immortal words. So as we do come, let's come with a spirit of reverence and a longing to hear what God would have to say to us today. It was back in the 1600s that a man by the name of John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan was in the Bedford Jail in England. He was there for 12 years. He had a wife and several children. One of them was a little girl who was blind, but yet he could do nothing to take care of his family. He was stuck away in jail for the crime of preaching the gospel. But while he was in jail, he wrote one of the best loved and best known books of all time. In fact, at one time, it was the second most widely read book next to the English Bible. And in that book, John Bunyan shows the allegory of a man named Christian who's fleeing from the city of destruction and he's on his way to the celestial city. And as he's going on this route, he goes into the interpreter's house. And when he's in the interpreter's house, I'm just going to read to you now from from what we find in that book. It says, There he sees the picture of a very grave person hang up against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. He had his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. And in this picture, this portrait, we have the preacher in the interpreter's house. Now what is the preacher like? Well, according to John Bunyan, he had his eyes lifted up to heaven because it was in heaven that his Lord dwelt and his Lord was watching him on earth, listening to the words that he would preach. So he had his eyes lifted to heaven. The best of books was in his hand. The word of God, the Bible, was in his hand. And the law of truth written upon his lips. The world is behind his back. 
because he's not preaching for the pleasure and the approval of the world. He's preaching for the pleasure and approval of God Almighty. He stood as if he pleaded with men to come to Christ to be saved. And there was a crown of gold that did hang over his head. The righteous rewards that he will receive for faithful service. This is Bunyan's graphic description of the preacher. And as we look to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's description of the preacher. Now the central idea in chapter 4 verses 1 to 5, I believe, is this. Verse 2, preach the word. Everything before that leads up to it, and everything that follows it is just descriptive of it. Listen again. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Well, what is Paul charging him to do? Here it comes. Preach the word. How is he supposed to do it? He's supposed to be ready in season and out of season. He is to do it by reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction. Why is he to do it? For the time will come while they will not adore sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. How is he to do this work? But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 1, the idea there is guard the gospel. Chapter 2, the idea is suffer for the gospel. Chapter 3, the idea is continue in the gospel. Well, here in chapter 4, the idea is preach the gospel. Timothy, preach the gospel. Now, usually when I come to you on a Sunday morning with a sermon, I come with two, three, or four points. But as I outlined this, I came up with eight. So this is an eight-point sermon. And originally I thought, okay, I'll deliver an eight-point sermon. But as soon as I start to manuscript it, and that's for you budding preachers, this is why manuscripting is good. I got to point number four, and I'd already typed 3,600 words. And I thought, well, that's what I normally use in one sermon. This is going to have to be a two-parter. <laughs> so part one today is points one, two, three, and four. Next Sunday, points five, six, seven, and eight. So this morning we're going to be looking looking at how we are to preach this gospel. Now let me just give you all eight points up front. We are to preach solemnly, biblically, continually, faithfully, urgently, courageously, evangelistically, and purposefully. So point number one, we are to preach solemnly. We know this because of verse one. He says, I solemnly charge you. Now, what does he mean by, I solemnly charge you? We don't use that phrase very much anymore. He's saying, I am laying a command on you. With all the weight and authority and seriousness that I can muster, I am laying upon you this charge. Remember, Paul is about to die. He's going to be beheaded soon, under Nero's reign. Since he's leaving, he's passing the baton to Timothy and saying, you take charge. You continue where I'm leaving off. And because I'm leaving, I am solemnly charging you to continue to do what I've been doing all these years. Now you might say, well, what relevance does all this have for me? I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. Well, interestingly... 
in a church that's as small as ours, it's interesting to me that we have preachers here. We have people who go out and preach the gospel to lost people in the open air. We have people that get up here and preach to the church. So we do have others besides myself that do preach. And in addition to that, even if you're not a preacher, this is relevant because you as the church need to hold whoever preaches to the standards that Paul gives here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if we ever start to stray from what he taught us to do as when we preach, we need to call our preachers to account. And we need to gently but firmly say, this is what the Word of God says about preaching. This is how preaching needs to be conducted. We're not to do it the way the world wants preaching to be conducted. We're to do it the way God wants it done. So, he says, I solemnly charge you. I solemnly charge you. The word solemn means serious or grave. It's the idea here of there is a weightiness about this matter. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. There is nothing more important to do with your life if God has called you to preach than to preach that gospel clearly and sincerely and urgently and courageously. And so Paul solemnly lays this charge upon him. Paul is not being frivolous. He's not being lighthearted. He's not joking around. Paul is deadly serious. He's in blood earnest when he tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you because I'm about to die. You're about to take over. Preach the word. So it's a solemn charge. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. God and Jesus Christ are watching you. They're listening to you. Every word you preach, they're listening to those words. They're watching your life. They're watching your ministry. They're watching how you use your time. They're watching as you sacrifice for others. They're watching to see if you love the church and love lost people. You're doing all that you're doing in the presence of God. He sees. And He will give an... Or you will give an account and he will reward one day. He goes on to say, it's not just in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but this Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. The one in whose presence you're preaching is the one who will judge your life. Jesus himself said in John 5.22, for not even the Son, I'm sorry, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all authority to the Son. And then verse 27, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So Jesus Christ has been given all judgment by the Father. It's not the Father that's going to judge us. It's not the Holy Spirit who will judge us. It's Jesus Christ, God's Son. And it's fitting, isn't it? That Christ would be the judge because Jesus is the God-man. He was tempted in all points as we are. He is God become a human being. He took on flesh. He knows what it's like to live in this world. He did it. And so it's fitting that He would be the one that judges us, seeing that most of mankind has rejected Him or ignored Him or neglected Him, but He will sit upon that throne one day and all those who have rejected Him will be brought before Him and He will pass sentence on each one. So He'll pass sentence on the lost, but He's also going to pass sentence on the saved. Now, if you are righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, have you been justified? 
This won't be a judgment as to whether your sin has been borne by Him. That's, that's been taken care of. Christ has borne the wrath of God against your sin. But there will be a giving of an account of your life to Him. John says in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 3, that he didn't want to shrink away from Christ at His coming. He didn't want to be ashamed. He didn't want to have regrets as to how he had lived his life or how he had spent his time upon this earth. Over in 1 Peter, Peter talks about living a holy life as strangers and aliens during this time of your stay upon earth, as though it's a very brief, fleeting time that we have to live upon this earth. So Jesus will be the judge. We will be called to account. We will give an account on that day. And he will render rewards to his faithful servants. This is a solemn charge. We must preach solemnly because we're solemnly charged to preach. Because we are doing it in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus himself is going to judge us. He will judge our deeds and reward those who have been faithful to him. And then he goes on to say, well before I do that, let me back up. Let me just make this statement. He says that we are t- that Jesus is going to judge who? The living and the dead. The living and the dead. Now what did he mean by that? He could have meant several things. He could have meant those who are alive spiritually and those who are dead spiritually. But I don't think that's the meaning. He could have meant uh, those bodies that are dead and the souls that are alive. The bodies be raised, united to the soul and Those persons stand before Christ. But I don't think that's what he means either. I think it's more simple than that. I I think he simply means those who are alive when he comes and those who have already died when he comes. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to judge all men from Adam to the last living person on this earth. Whether you're saved or you're lost, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe in a general judgment. And theologians use that term general judgment to mean a judgment in which everybody, all humanity, will stand before him at a single time and receive their judgment on the same occasion. Now, the different Christians and different schools of thoughts have different beliefs about this. Some believe there will be several different judgments. Some believe that there's going to be a judgment as soon as the rapture takes place and then seven years later, if you happen to be a dispensationalist, Christ comes back and there's another judgment of the righteous who lived on the earth and went through the tribulation. And then uh, they believe that there's a thousand year reign on the earth and then after that there's a judgment of the lost. So there's at least three different judgments in that school of thought. I though, when I look at the scriptures, it seems plain to me that there's one and everybody's there. Do you remember Jesus said when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He's going to sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be brought before Him. And He will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. So sheep and goats will be there before Him and when He sits on that throne, when He comes in His glory, and what's He going to do? He's going to assign them eternal destinies. To the sheep on His right, He'll say, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats on his left, he's going to say, Depart, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46 of that same chapter, this is Matthew 25, he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
I don't know how God could have made it any clearer than to show us that there's going to be one judgment in which eternal destinies will be given out to all humankind. Or if that isn't enough, uh, John chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour, a single hour, is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. So a single hour in which everybody lost and saved will be judged, either heaven or hell will be assigned. Paul says Jesus Christ is the judge. He's coming back. When he comes back, he will judge the saved and the lost, those who have died before, those who are living when he comes, and they will receive their respective eternal destinies. The sheep will be invited into his eternal kingdom to enjoy his glory forever. Rewards will be given to them. But the lost will be raised in never-dying bodies that they might receive eternal punishment and torment and endure that in these bodies that can never die in hell, both saved and lost will receive their respective eternal destinies given by Jesus Christ himself. He says, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is where we learn when this judgment will take place. It's when he appears. When he appears. This is talking about his second coming. When Christ returns again, that's when men are judged. And his kingdom. His eternal kingdom is revealed and made manifest to everyone. Over in Romans chapter 8, it talks about how the sons of God will be revealed. The lost world is going to take, take notice of who are the true sons of God on this final day. Because the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the holy angels, and the elect saints of God will be distinguished from all the rest of mankind, and His kingdom will be shown and made manifest to everyone. And folks, it is a very solemn thing to preach the gospel. When we get up to preach the gospel, we don't, we don't get up to try to make people uh, feel good, necessarily, or to laugh. We get up to teach them and to proclaim to them the most serious issue that can ever possibly be uttered. Everlasting damnation or everlasting glory hangs in the balance between the sons of men and we're the ones proclaiming the way that they can escape judgment and receive everlasting life. I remember back in 1998... Uh, I was leading a team of people in our church, Milpitas Bible Fellowship. Every Monday night we'd go out and ride the light rail and we'd witness to people. We'd sit down next to them and go through a spiritual belief survey and we'd hand out tracts. There was one time when my son Jonathan sort of laid down the gauntlet and he says, well, Dad, how come you don't preach on the train? And I thought, well, why don't I preach on the train? So he actually stirred me to get up and actually preach. And so I, occasionally I would do that. I would get up and have a very short but, but pointed gospel presentation for all the people sitting on the train, and then I'd walk out and hand them out tracts. Well, after I did that at one point, this one lady was leaving, and she pressed a note into my hand. And when she was gone, I took a look at the note. I thought, is this going to be hate mail, or what is this going to be? And this is what it said. Oh, the fields are white, for the harvest is great and ripe, and it is ready for the gospel sickle. 
Oh, where are the laborers to gather the golden grain into the master's garner? The world is dying. The grave is filling. Hell is boasting. And the end rapidly approaches. God left a glorious work of saving souls in the hands of the church. You have today a new jewel for your crown. How he must be pleased with you. May God continue to bless you. Stay bold in his truth. And I kept that little note and I stuck it away in a file and every once in a while I pull it out and read it again. What an encouraging note that was. But what she said was dead on. It was absolutely right. The world is dying. The grave is filling. Hell is boasting. And the end rapidly approaches. Folks, it is a solemn thing for us to proclaim the gospel of the living Christ. And that's the very first thing Paul teaches Timothy. Preach solemnly. Number two, preach biblically. Because he tells him, preach what? The word. Now, if we have any doubt as to what he means by that, all we have to do is go back in our Bibles to chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And if we have any doubt what the sacred writings are, verse 16 tells us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So when Paul says preach the word, it's in the context. Remember, there were no chapter divisions when he wrote this. It was just one long letter. This is in the context of the sacred writings and scripture. So what Paul is telling Timothy to do is preach the Bible. Now, the Bible that Timothy had was the Old Testament, and perhaps he had access to some of Paul's letters of the New Testament. Our Bible is the Old and New Testament, and we are to preach the whole thing, the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God. Timothy, not only preach solemnly, preach biblically. That's the content of what we are to preach. Now, let's think about that word preach for a minute. The word preach means to herald. It's the picture of the town crier. Now think back to a time before we had telephones and television sets. And if you needed to get news out, you didn't have newspapers. You would have a messenger from the king bearing his imperial messages. And he would go into a city. He would go to the town square and he would start saying, Hear ye! Hear ye! And what he's doing is attracting a crowd. He's trying to get all the people that are nearby to close down their shops, come into the town square, and listen to the message. And he would say something like, Hear ye, hear ye, by order of the great majestic king, by the seal of his imperial decree, I declare to you that the king announces to all of his rebellious subjects that if they will lay down the arms of their warfare, And if they will unconditionally surrender to his government and his rule, he will pardon all their crimes. And he will receive them favorably as subjects. And he will bestow upon them every benefit and blessing of his kingdom. That would be an example of a town crier giving a message, announcing as a herald the message of the king. You see, preaching is not the same as sharing, or discussing, or debating. It's not like any of those things. Preaching is announcing. Preaching is proclaiming. 
Do you remember Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. What he's saying there is, Go and announce good news and do it with all of the authority that I bestow upon you for this task. We should preach with conviction, with confidence, with certainty that the message we are preaching is true, and we should declare it as the message of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now what are we to preach? Well, he says here it's the Word. It's the Word of God. Nothing else but the Scriptures. I mean, what else can you preach? (laughs) Paul wasn't telling Timothy that he needed to invent his message. Timothy, come up with something really creative that will really knock their socks off. They'll just be blown away by how creative and imaginative and witty you are. No, he wasn't to do that, was he? He was to preach the word of somebody else. And he had no right to change it. If I was a messenger for the United States military, and it was my job to go to a young woman's home and tell her that her husband had just been killed in active duty over in Iraq, but I got to thinking to myself, well, gosh, she's not going to like that message. It's going to make her cry. I mean, I can't do that to her. I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just change it a little bit. I, ma'am, I, I'm speaking to you on behalf of the United States government. And I've got a message for you. Your husband has been injured in duty. Uh, he's in a hospital now. We hope that he'll recover soon. Is that going to go over well? <laughs> She's going to find out that her husband has been killed. And that man has been unfaithful to tell her the truth. See, the, all the preacher is is a messenger boy. He doesn't invent his message. He, he has it. God has already given him the message. He delivers it. And he delivers it straight, and he delivers it simply, and he delivers it plainly, and he delivers it faithfully and truthfully. And a man who doesn't do that is unfaithful to God. If we don't tell people this book, and tell them exactly what this book says, we are being unfaithful to the living God, and remember, he's going to judge us. We have no right to change this this content. We are to preach the Word, the Word of the living God. And I have found, I've been preaching now for 31 years. In my judgment, it is best to preach expositorily. What that simply means is that you expose what is in the text. Now, there are times when it's good to preach topical sermons. It's necessary. But for the main diet of God's people... For week in and week out preaching, I believe just going through books of the Bible and exposing to them what is there in the text is the best way to feed the sheep. The reason is because they're getting the context week after week after week. They're seeing this, the author's flow of thought being unfolded. They're seeing what he has to say from this passage, now it connects to the next passage, until they see and understand the whole content of that book. So brothers and sisters, the job of God's preacher who lifts his eyes to heaven and who has the best of books in his hand is to preach that book. So brothers, if you preach, preach the scripture. Have a text. If you preach in the open air, use a text like an arrow. Or Richard Baxter talks about screwing the truth into their minds. (laughs) That's a vivid image, isn't it? Think about a screw and someone screwing it into your brain. 
What he meant there is he wanted to get truth into the mind so that they couldn't get it out. And wouldn't it be wonderful that people who listen to open-air preaching, they hear a text, they hear the words of God, say, for instance, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I remember when I was a young Christian, maybe one or two years old in the Lord, and I just had this overwhelming sense that I needed to go down to downtown Fresno and just talk to someone about Jesus. So I did it, and I was all alone, just went down there. And when I was down there, somebody was standing up, doing his best to preach, and he didn't really know what to do, and so he was just repeating verses of Scripture. But I remember, he repeated that verse of Scripture. Now, it's been 30 years later, and I still remember it. It was screwed into my mind. <laughs> the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So we are to preach the Word, take a text of Scripture and give it to the people, and open that up. Expose them to what that scripture means and then enforce and apply it with all the force that we can. So we are to preach solemnly. We are to preach biblically. We're also to preach continually. Because he says, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. I was thinking of this in context of, of warfare and being a soldier in a war. Say for the Civil War. I'm kind of uh, enamored for some reason by that period of history. I, I like to go back and read the accounts of the Civil War. But think of yourself. If you're a soldier in the war. You have to be ready at a moment's notice to charge and march into battle if your commanding officer gives you the order. You need to be ready at all times to fight. It doesn't matter if you're feeling tired. I imagine. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a soldier? You're always tired. <laughs> you might be sick. You might not be feeling well. It, it doesn't matter. You are to be ready in season and out of season. Now, what does he mean by in season and out of season? We talk about hunting season. You know, we're in season now, and then the season ends. We're out of season what he's talking about is when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. When you have the applause of men and when you have the jeers and the persecutions of men. When people are hungering for the word and whether they're despising the word. When you have multitudes to listen to you and when you have one or two to listen to you. In season or out of season. What he's basically telling Timothy to do is be ready to preach all the time. Continually. Constantly. Be persevering in your preaching of the gospel. There were times when Jesus preached out of season. And there were times when he preached in season. There were times when he had to get into a boat to preach to the people on shore because the people were so vast that you could be trampled on if you didn't do something. So he would, he would get into a boat and go out a little bit of ways, and all the people would be lining the shore, thousands and thousands of people. He was preaching in season. They were hungering for his words. But remember, in John chapter 6, there were other times when he told them, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or else you have no life in yourself. And everybody left him. And he even pointed to his twelve and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, well, where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? That was out of season. He said some hard things people didn't want to hear. So we need to be ready. We need to preach continually. Whether or not we have the flattery 
and the approval and the applause of men or the jibes and the jeers and the mockery of men. It should not matter to us. We are ready to preach at all times. So we are to preach solemnly, biblically, continually, and then fourthly, faithfully. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now those first two words are synonyms. Reprove, rebuke. They mean practically the same thing. In fact, if you look them up in an English dictionary, they'll give the same definition for both words. We are to reprove and to rebuke. The word means to reprimand or to express strong or stern disapproval. And these two words are the negative aspects of preaching. Exhort is the positive aspect. But let's talk about the negative aspect for a minute. We are to reprove and rebuke. What that tells us is that we are going to have to confront sin. We're going to have to call sin, sin. We're going to have to call spade, a spade. We can't dilly-dally around. We can't try to get our way around talking about negative things. If, if you are listening to a preacher who won't talk about sin, you're, talk, you're listening to a, someone who's not being faithful to Jesus Christ. Paul commands preachers of the gospel to reprove and to rebuke. Now John the Baptist did that, didn't he? He rebuked the king. This is the height of insanity if you value your life. In fact, he lost his life over that. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And eventually he lost his head because he was willing to rebuke the king. Jesus was another man who reproved and rebuked. Think about Matthew chapter 23. He's addressing the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is what he tells them. He calls them blind men, fools, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites seven times in the chapter. Sons of hell, whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers, and he says eight times, Woe to you! Now do you think Jesus was doing that because he hated them? Because he delighted in being caustic and harsh? No. He cared for their souls. He needed to wake them up. Because they had this self-righteous veneer. They thought that they were fine with God because of their works. They needed to be jarred. They needed to be sobered up. And so Jesus did that. Now that led to, eventually to his crucifixion. If you're going to obey the Apostle Paul's command to Timothy to reprove and rebuke sin, you will face opposition. That's why in chapter 2 he says that we are to deal gently with those who oppose the truth. So reprove, rebuke. We will have to do that in our day too. There are certain sins of our culture that we have just sort of accepted. And people don't look at them as sin any longer. Like divorce. I mean, we just kind of accept it. We don't call divorce sin anymore. We hardly ever even talk about it. What about fornication? You know, when, when I go around knocking on doors and get to know the people that live in certain apartment complexes, it is rare that I find anybody that's married. Almost all of them are just living together anymore. Fornication. And people just kind of accept that as the, that's just the normal, the new normal. (laughs) 
homosexuality. It's becoming so that it's just accepted as a cultural norm here in America. Abortion. All of these things the Bible would identify as sin. They need to be reproved. They need to be rebuked. People need to understand that these are crimes against God Almighty. God disapproves. And then we need to tell them that this is sin, that God will hold you to account for these sins that you've committed. You need to flee from the wrath of God. You need to turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. But then again, he says not only to reprove and rebuke, but exhort. This is the positive aspect. To exhort means to encourage somebody. So after we have reproved and rebuked, we don't leave them in that condition. We exhort them. If they're lost, we exhort them to flee to Christ. If they're saved, we exhort them to apply the biblical commands, to obey the truth. To exhort means to to urge somebody to a course of action. See, our, our people, let's just talk about the church for a minute. The people in the church have need of applying the truth. It's not, it's not good enough just simply to tell them this is sin and that is sin. You need to repent of that. That's all true. But they need to be taught and instructed and urged to apply the truth in their life. That's why he goes on to say, with great patience and instruction. And the word instruction is the same Greek word. It's related to the same word for doctrine, sound doctrine, in verse 3. What he's saying is that every preacher is also a teacher. And every teacher will also end up preaching at times. There's crossover between these two giftings of the Holy Spirit. Our people need to be taught. They need to be instructed how to live righteous lives. They needed to be instructed on being, having the word of Christ dwell in them richly so that they can obey the truth. Or being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or mortifying the deeds of the body through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so teaching and instruction must accompany reproving and rebuking and exhorting. And he says to do this with great patience. Why do you think rebuking and reproving and exhorting would have to be done with great patience? Yes. People are slow to obey. We, we have... We have this old flesh that we carry around that is opposed to the will of God. It's opposed to the working of the Holy Spirit. And because people sometimes are slow to obey the truth, we need to be very, very patient. In other words, we don't give up on people. We just keep going again and again and again. This is what Paul was saying back in chapter 2. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, Patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there is to be a gentle, patient, working with people. If we become angry at people, or frustrated because they just don't change, or harsh with them, or just always censoring them, We're not doing the will of God. We need to be patient and kind and gentle, but speaking truth over and over and over and praying for our people. You see, we need to love our people as much as we love the truth. 
Those of you who preach, ask yourself, do I love the person I'm talking to as much as I love what I'm saying to them? What's my tone like when I'm speaking? Am I coming across as a person that hates them or is angry with them or is harsh? Or am I coming across as someone who loves them and loves their soul and is concerned about them? So we are to preach the word solemnly, biblically, continually, and faithfully. So let me just apply what we have seen today. Let me just speak to a couple of you here, and uh, we'll have John go online and watch this, because he also would benefit from this. To preach solemnly. And I count myself in this, whether it's here or whether we do open air preaching. By, by preaching solemnly, I'm not talking about there is no humor involved, that it's somehow wrong to have any humor. That's not true. I'm not saying that we have to be morose or act like we've been baptized in pickle juice. You know, we come across as these people that just have, uh, we're just uptight all the time. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a weightiness to the message we have. And we realize the gravity and the seriousness of the message we have. And we speak in light of eternity to come. Richard Baxter once made this statement. I preach to you as a dying man to dying men and never sure to preach again. Three of us just got done reading the book, The Reformed Pastor. But I would recommend any Christian to read that book. And we were struck as we read through that book of how many times Richard Baxter talks about heaven and hell. It's almost on every page of the book. He was absolutely absorbed by the truth that all men are going to heaven or hell. It just, it flavored his ministry. And it would be good if that flavored our lives. And it colored the way we saw people as we rubbed shoulders with people. This person has an immortal soul that's going to heaven or hell. What would God want me to do in order... To, and as I relate to this person, what would he want me to do in order to help them escape hell and enter into heaven? So there's preaching that must be solemn. Preaching must be biblical. When we preach, let's make sure it's the word. It's not our own stories or anecdotes. It's not our own jokes. It's not our own you know, life. It's the word of God. That's the only thing that has power, Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Brian's message has no power whatsoever. But God's does. So let's be preaching that. Let's preach continually. Whether or not people like the message, whether or not there's lots to listen or a few, whether it's in season or out of season, we are to be telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's preach faithfully. This is the hard part. This is the part where we sometimes can shy back because it is hard to say some of the things the Bible says to people. They're true, but we know nobody's going to want to hear them. Nobody wants to hear that they're under the wrath of God. Nobody wants to hear that they must repent or perish. The Bible says that's true. Nobody wants to hear that they need to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow Christ if they're ever going to be saved. No one wants to hear that they have to lose their life for Christ's sake and His gospel in order to find it. No one wants to hear that they need to give up all their possessions if they ever want to be a disciple of Jesus. 
But this book, the best of books, that's what's in it. And we have no right to hold this back from people. And if we do, we are unfaithful men and we will give an account to Almighty God. So may God give us courage to be faithful to people, to call sin, sin, and call righteousness, righteousness, and to direct people away from anything other than Jesus Christ to Him and to His blessed gospel. So may God help all of us to do that. And those of you who are not preachers, can I just encourage you to please insist that those who preach the gospel in this church preach the way Paul told Timothy to preach it? And if it's not being done gently, respectfully, but firmly, come and say, show, show us the Word of God and, and say, it seems like this has sort of been slipping out. You're not preaching biblically or solemnly or continually or faithfully. And there'll be a lot of other adverbs we're going to add next week. But we want to be held to that standard because that's the standard by which we're going to be judged. Let's pray. Lord God, would you seal the truths that you have put in your word in this passage to all of our hearts, preacher or non-preacher alike. We pray, Lord, that at the bridge it would be known for faithfulness to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up preachers in this church, whether as elders here or as uh, just preachers out in the community proclaiming the good news. We pray you'd raise up more and more of them. And above all, Lord, we ask that we would not have to be uh, ashamed and shrink back from you at your coming because we were cowards, faithless, would not tell people the truth. But we pray, Lord, you'd give us the grace to be able to tell the people the truth winsomely. I think of your servant, George Woodfield, who would, who would weep every time he would preach because he cared for the souls of those he talked to. Would you give us a great love for the people we talk to, Lord? That it's not just the, the truth we love, but it's the souls of people that we love. We ask this in your name. Amen.